Some of you will have heard of the phrase expressive individualism, but most of you will not. It's okay. Expressive individualism is the way of life in our modern world. Sociologists talk about this a lot if you read those kinds of books. But you don't have to read books to see expressive individualism. You just have to walk around Portland. From purple houses, something I never saw until I moved here. But now I have a bunch in my neighborhood. From purple houses to punk rock to hipster coffee shops. In the modern world, we understand that you are not being your authentic self. You're not really being you unless you're giving expression to it in a way that everybody else has to see and acknowledge and even approve of. Religion is not unaffected by this. The modern evangelical church emphasizes a kind of come-as-you-are ethos, and we are quick to try to cater to everybody's personal preferences. There are boomer churches and exer churches and millennial churches and now Gen Z churches. And all of these churches have multiple services and multiple sites so they can accommodate all of the different preferences and expressions and tastes. And here's the thing. It works. It works. Religion, on your terms, is big business. And I think we just kind of assume that, of course, God is happy with it, because really what God wants to see is more people in the pews, and he's happy to get whatever he can get from us on whatever terms we're willing to bring it. What if he isn't? What if God is more concerned about his preferences than yours? especially when it comes to worship? Well, that's the question we're going to answer this morning as we continue our series in 1 Corinthians called United We Stand. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. This is found on page 1017, 1017, in the Bibles, in the pews and chairs around you page 1017, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 34. As you're turning there, let me remind you what's been going on in the book of Corinthians. Paul has been arguing for the unity of the local church there in Corinth. This was a church that was divided, and as we've seen, what ultimately they were divided about was who's really spiritual. And they were attaching their spirituality to like their favorite preacher or the food you ate or didn't eat or your, your opinions about sex and marriage. Paul has argued that being spiritual is not about any of those things. Being spiritual is about giving ourselves to Christ and conforming ourselves, imitating Him in both His holiness and in His self-sacrificing love. Now, he's been aiming this at lots of different individuals in the church and different things going on, but beginning with our verse this morning, chapter 11, verse 2, he makes a bit of a turn, and he is going to start now all the way through to the end of chapter 14, addressing the problem of self-centered, self-expression in their gatherings. 
in the, in the corporate worship of the church and the division that it brings. Now, over the next few chapters, he's going to look at prayer. He's going to look at the Lord's Supper. Uh, he, he's going to talk about the, the use of spiritual gifts in the church. Uh, he's, he's even going to talk about how Sunday morning should work. Like, how should we order our gatherings when we get together? And so we're going to be looking at those over the next few weeks and months. Uh, but, but this morning, we're going to start with those first two topics, prayer and the Lord's Supper. And, and here's the argument that Paul makes that runs not just through those two issues, but really all of the topics that he's going to address over the next few weeks. We'll put it on the, on the screen. We approach God on his terms, not ours. That, that's really Paul's argument all through chapters 11 to 14, and it's what we're going to focus this morning. We approach God on his terms, not ours. Paul's going to give two reasons for this in chapter 11. And as we consider Paul's argument, what I want you to do is consider what would it mean for you to submit to God's preferences in his worship rather than asserting your own? What would it mean for you to submit to God's preferences in worship rather than asserting your own? Okay. We approach God on his terms, not our own, because first, self-expressive worship dishonors God. Self-expressive worship dishonors God. Look with me in chapter 11, verse 2. Now, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her, hair sh- or her head shaved, let her head be covered. A man should not cover his head, because he is the image and glory of God. So too, woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. All right, finally, after 10 chapters, Paul says something positive about the Corinthians. Did you notice that? I I, I praise you. We weren't expecting that. He praises them because they remember him and everything and hold fast to the traditions. Those traditions, what he's referring to, is the authoritative 
apostolic body of teaching that, that he delivered to them when, when he started the church there in Corinth. Now, now, obviously, Paul is speaking in hyperbole at this point. If he weren't, we would, have, we would not have needed chapters 1 through 10. Uh, no, he, he's speaking hyperbolically because, right, after a whole series of rebukes, I mean, we have heard nothing but rebuke after rebuke after rebuke. After a whole series of, of rebukes, he needs to win their hearing again. So he, he, he says, okay, you're not doing everything wrong. You are holding on to the traditions that I delivered to you. However, not everyone is holding on to that teaching. It seems that some, not all, some of the women in the church have decided to stop wearing veils now, when you, when you think about veils here, don't think of the, about the veil in front of the face. It's the veil over, over the hair. They've, they've decided to stop wearing veils to cover their hair in public worship, specifically, as we see there in verses 4 and 5, when they pray in the public assembly or prophesy in the public assembly. All right, so that's the problem he's addressing. But that's not where he starts. I skipped over verse 3. He starts by putting his whole discussion about head coverings in the context of relationships that are defined by headship, which is another way of relationships that are defined by authority. You see there in verse 3, he refers to Christ's headship over every man, a man's headship over a woman, and God's headship over Christ. All right, and immediately, we are faced with two difficulties. Maybe you think there are more difficulties already by now, but, I, but there are two that really jump out at me, right? First, is Paul there in verse 3 when, when he says um, that, that the man is the head of the woman, is Paul saying all men are over all women? And that, that if you're a woman, you just have to obey any man that happens to come along. No, Paul is not saying that. He is not saying that. Scripture affirms male headship in the family and in a more limited context in the church by reserving the office of elder to men. Paul here and nowhere else in Scripture is asserting a a kind of general headship of men over all women in society at large. Second issue is Paul saying that the second person of the Trinity is subordinate to, less, lesser than in some way, the first person of the Trinity. Again, I'm going to say no. That is not what he's saying. In, in referring to Christ rather than the Son, Paul is referring to what we call the economic Trinity. That is the Trinity understood in terms of what they do in the work of redemption and how what they do relates to each other. He's not referring to who they are, what we call the imminent trinity in their very being. We see this in Jesus' own language. On the one hand, Jesus said that he kept his father's commands in John 15, 10. So so in a very real sense, uh, Jesus submitted to the father's authority. He obeyed the father. But Jesus also says, I and the Father are one in John 10, 29. In in our very being, 
there, there is no uh, inequality. We are one. So what's going on here? Well, Paul is setting up a theological analogy. He's saying that the relationship between God and Christ is reflected in some way in the relationship between Christ and men and men and women in the church. Now look, no analogy is perfect, and you can press any analogy too far. But in one way or another, Paul is saying, in one way or another, each of these relationships, at least some of the time and considered in some contexts, are structured by authority and submission to that authority. At the same time, submission in its proper place does not negate the the equal value and dignity between the two parties in the relationship. Paul goes out of his way to make this point there in verses 11 and 12. Did you notice that? Having kind of established the, the unequal authority, he's like, oh, but, however, woman is not independent of man and man is not independent of woman, just as woman came from man, thinking about Eve being created from Adam, so man comes through woman. There's not a man in this room that was not dependent on a woman to actually come into this world. There is no way I'm going to be able to deal with all of the issues that this passage raises. So let me refer you to the four-week series I did on gender back in May. Uh, I, I, I took a lot of time. Uh, those were long sermons, and there were four of them. Uh, I took a lot of time to try to unpack the Bible's teaching on gender and authority. So I want to refer you to that. What I also want to note is none of this is Paul's main point. His point is that given this relationship between men and women, given the fact that, at least in some contexts, the relationship between a man and a woman is characterized by authority and submission to that authority, There are ways to approach God that honor him, and there are ways to approach God that dishonor him. Paul says, for a woman to pray with her head uncovered by a veil is to bring shame not only on herself, because it's as if her head is shaved, and I think that's a a cultural distinction that that continues to carry into our day, right? Uh, Men parade their baldness around pretty proudly, or at least they get used to it. I've yet to meet a woman who does that, all right? So not only does it bring shame on herself and her husband, Paul says it's also to dishonor God in his public worship. Now, Paul offers three arguments for this. The first one is cultural in verses four to six. In the ancient Near East, for a man to cover his head that was a sign of shame, a, a, a sign that he was being shamed, or, or a sign that he was in mourning. And so Paul says that would be an utterly inappropriate way for a man to approach God in worship, that, that, it, that, that he was in a state of shame or mourning. On the other hand, he says, for a woman to cover her head, well, in the ancient Near East, for a woman to cover her head with a veil, that was a sign that she was a moral and pious woman, not a prostitute. Uh, We have different ways of figuring out who prostitutes are as they stand on street corners. Back then, 
You could tell a prostitute immediately. She wasn't wearing a veil. Her hair was loose about her shoulders. This actually is still the meaning of the veil in much of the Middle East today. Not the veil in front of the face, but the veil over the hair. It signifies that you are a a proper, virtuous, pious woman. Well, that's his first argument, a cultural argument. His second argument is from the biblical order of creation, which he talks about there in verses 7 to 12. Paul is referring to the account that we read earlier in our service today from, from Genesis 2, where Adam is created first, and then Eve is created from a rib taken from Adam in order to help him with the task that he's been assigned. Now, again, I spent a lot of time talking about this in the, the series on gender. In the context of marriage, in the context of marriage, Eve was created to help Adam with a task that he could not accomplish on his own. There's no inequality of value or worth or dignity here. But there is a relational order. There is a structure inside of marriage characterized by authority and submission to that authority. And that Biblical creational order, Paul says, is is reflected in his cultural symbol of authority, which is the veil, which apparently even the angels want to see upheld. She knows there in verse 10. I'm really not at all sure what that means. Other than to say, apparently, the angels are concerned to see that the people of God continue to uphold the creational order that God established. And in his context, that was done culturally through the veil. But but that's the second argument. So there's a cultural argument. There's an order of creation argument. Uh, His third argument is from nature, there in verses 13 to 15. He says, look, everybody can see, judge for yourselves, everybody can see this. Long hair is a disgrace on men. But long hair is the glory of women. Now, again, that feels a little bit cultural. And yet, he seems to be trying to place this part of his argument in the nature of things itself. His argument seems to be that if her long hair is a covering, that suggests the appropriateness of the cultural practice of covering with a veil. All right, is all that clear? Totally convincing? Yeah, I didn't think so. Here's the problem with this section. This this is a section in Paul's letter where his his theology and culture get get all intertwined with each other. And we don't entirely understand the culture. Like, it's not our culture, right? His argument is so brief, it is lacking in so much detail that we can't even be entirely sure what the practice is that he objects to, or the practice that he commends, or why they're doing it. The, the honor-shame implications that seem so obvious to him, judge for yourselves, isn't it disgraceful? Uh, well, no, Paul, it, it's not that obvious. But it's really obvious to him and his readers, well, those distinctions are kind of lost on us, because the past really is a foreign country. 
Here, here I think, is what is clear. Some of the women, not all of them, some of the women in Corinth were adorning themselves or were displaying themselves in public in a way, we're not entirely sure what that is, but in some way that flouted not only cultural norms, but the gendered distinctions that God had established between men and women. And particularly, that flouted the authority that God had, had established between a husband and a wife. And it is this denial of gendered distinctions and authority that was causing divisions in the church. And, and even arguments, you see that there in verse 16. If anyone wants to argue about this, they're, they're arguing. All right, what does this mean for us? We live in a different culture, as I've already mentioned, obviously. I don't think I see a single hat on a woman. Uh, yeah, I, di- I, didn't, I didn't notice any. I grew up where women always wore hats to church, and we don't do that anymore. So I, we, we don't live in a culture uh, that does this. We live in a different time. So what does this mean? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Mark Whitcomb is in sin for having slightly longer hair. (laughs) It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that Carissa Sudam is in sin for having slightly shorter hair. I complimented her on her haircut just the other day. It does not mean that women need to wear veils or hats or scarves to church. Doesn't mean any of those things. It's quite clear that all of those things were cultural expressions that were getting at a a, a theological principle. And that's what we're after here. So, what does it mean? It means that we are not at liberty to erase God ordained gender distinctions as if heaven had already arrived. Uh, that, that, that is probably part of what's going on here, a sort of over-realized eschatology in which some of the women were saying, hey, we're new, we're new creatures, so I, I don't need to, to pay attention to these gender distinctions anymore. This has real implications, I think, for the way we think about the, the trans issue today. I talked about that in, that in the series that I've already referenced twice now. I'll reference again. Without doubt, there are people in our midst who struggle with feeling like their identity, who they are, in a gendered way, doesn't match their body. We need to have massive compassion because that's a real form of suffering. But suffering does not give us the authority, the right to erase the distinctions or deny the distinctions that God has put in place. I think it also means that our public worship and our gathered community should reflect the gender-based structures of authority that God established at creation. So, So contrary to what some claim, even though it is true the new creation has come in Christ, the created order still remains. 
And, and so at the very least, despite all the pressure from our own culture that we feel to the contrary, the office of elder in the church is and should continue to be reserved for men. Uh, it, it's not a question of competency. It's a, it's a question of submitting to God's word. There are a whole bunch of women in this church who are superb public teachers of God's word, who are superb public speakers. I dare say there are a few women in this church that are better at it than most of the men in this church. But it's not about what are you better at. No, it's, it's about being willing to submit to God's word. It'd be so easy to say, we should just let them express themselves. We should, we should let them be who God's made them to be. And they're teachers, they're public speakers, so let's let them. That way they can be fully who they are. Paul's point is clear. Self-expression is not the criteria for our public worship. God's honor is. And so the distinctions and the limits that he's put in place, we're going to keep. On the other hand, we do not want to put in place distinctions and limits that he has not put. Right? So... So did you notice that Paul gives instructions for how women should pray and prophesy in the public assembly? You know what that means? That means women should be praying and prophesying, whatever that means, we'll get to it in a few weeks. Women should be praying and prophesying in the public assembly. And boy, if they can pray and prophesy in the public assembly, they can certainly help people find a seat in the public assembly. They can certainly help pass out the Lord's Supper in the public assembly. They can certainly do all sorts of lesser things in the public assembly. We ought not put in place restrictions that God has not put in place. Even as we're not going to remove those limits that God himself has established. More broadly, I think this means that you should not think you can approach God while rejecting the authority that he has placed in your life. So children, that means you cannot follow Jesus and despise your parents' authority at the same time. Can't do it. He will not accept that. It means wives. You cannot say you love Jesus and yet buck against your husband's leadership. Jesus doesn't take that. He doesn't accept that. That is not pleasing to him. It means we cannot claim to be Christians and then reject lawful government authority because all government authority has been placed over us by God himself. Some of the stuff that's passing for patriotic Christianity right now is abhorrent to Jesus because he's the one who established the authority, whether you agree with it or not. We cannot be disciples at church, but troublemakers at work. That didn't work. That didn't please Jesus. We cannot expect the blessings of Christ in our lives 
while rejecting the blessing of the authority of the local church over your life. Jesus will not allow you to divorce him from his church and the authority that he's placed there. Now, yeah, I I, I get it. All, All human authority can be abused. And all human authority needs to be held accountable. But all authority, including authority attached to gender in the home and in the church, has been established by God. God has told us in his word how he is to be worshipped and served, both positively, what we we should be doing, how we should approach him, and negatively, what we should not do, how, how we should not approach him. And just as Paul said, we have no other custom in this church. I'm not not saying it's easy. I'm not at all suggesting that it's easy to figure out where where is that line of God's word and we're going to stay right on it and we're not going to go above it by requiring more and we're not going to go below it by taking away from what God said. I'm not saying it's easy, but this is what we're committed to. To having no other custom than that which has been delivered to us in God's word. We approach God on his terms, not ours, because self-expressive worship dishonors God. But second, we approach God on his terms, not our own, because self-expressive worship dishonors God's church. Self-expressive, self-assertive worship dishonors God's church. Let's carry on picking it up in verse 17. Now, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined 
so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I'll give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. All right, well, if the previous instructions about prayer were aimed at a small minority of women, the next issue is aimed at a much larger group in the church. And and now we see that their divisions were not simply about personal allegiance or their various, you know, theological opinions about things. That's what we've seen so far. Now, now we, we learn that when they gather together, there is a division based on class. There's a division between rich and poor, haves and have-nots. And Paul is appalled by it. He says, you gather, but not for the better, you gather for the worse. Your gatherings aren't building people up, they're tearing people down. Now, he recognizes that this division, these factions which are rooted in disobedience to the gospel, these divisions make clear, they're one of the ways that God makes clear who is genuinely saved and who is not? Who has God's approval and who does not? This seems to be what he's getting at there in verse 19. Time will tell. Time will always tell whether or not a person's profession of faith is genuine. Because a tree is always known by its fruit. Well, the context is their celebration of the Lord's Supper. Paul is unsparing in his criticism. He says, you you may call it the Lord's Supper. You may think you're gathering for the Lord's Supper. But it's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. It's your own supper that you're eating. There in verses 20 and 22. Now, apparently, what we know as the Lord's Supper was celebrated, at least in some of the early churches, alongside or in conjunction with a full meal. Some people think that's the love feast that Paul is talking about. I'm not sure about that. But, but it, 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 it's clear that when they celebrated the Lord's Supper, it wasn't just bread and cup, but it came along with a full meal. Only here's the problem. Not everybody was invited to the full meal. Not everybody was included. So imagine the scene. Everyone is gathered. But not everyone is eating. The rich are feasting. I don't think he's particularly concerned that they're literally getting drunk. He's trying to to heighten the contrast. The the rich are are feasting. They're, 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 They're indulging. They're gorging themselves. They're becoming drunk. While the poor look on hungry. Participating only in the bit of bread and cup that comes at the end. Paul has nothing but scorn for such behavior. That's the whole point of these rhetorical questions in verse 22. What should I say to you? Should I praise you? Do you you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? And he ends that section with the same words that he began that section. I do not praise you. The reason for these scorching remarks 
is found in the nature of the meal itself, which he reminds them of there in verses 23, uh, to, in verses uh, yeah, 23 to 25. These are the words that we read here at Henson every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. The meaning of the bread and the cup is that they represent and remind us of Christ, and not just Christ generally, but Christ in his self-sacrificing love for us. When, when we eat the Lord's Supper, we remember what Christ did for us. And as Paul concludes there in verse 26, every time we eat it, we are we are kind of doing two things at once. We're proclaiming his death. We're looking back at what he did for us, even as we look forward to his return. And we are declaring that we are the people that are shaped by, not just saved by, but shaped by that self-sacrificing love. Friends, the Lord's Supper shows us the gospel. The, 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 the Lord's Supper is like, a, like the, the one and only, well, no, because we've got baptism too. Okay, one of two dramas or, or plays that the Lord has given us for public worship. A, a play that, that acts out and shows us with our eyes and allows us to taste with our tongues what the gospel means. Bread broken, which, which is just bread. It's not magical. It doesn't become Jesus. But that bread broken standing for Christ's body, broken and given for us on the cross. The, the cup, which is meant to remind us because it stands for Christ's blood poured out for us on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. You need to understand that, that, that sin is not just a, a breaking of a rule. It's the breaking of a relationship, a relationship with God. It's a, it's a dishonoring and a, and a disgracing, a kind of spitting in the face of God. And because God is good, he, he must respond to that with justice, with righteousness. That the, the penalty for our sin is death, both bodily and spiritually. The punishment for our sin is that that death never ends. Because how could we ever, as finite creatures, pay back an infinite offense to an infinite God. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ took our place on the cross, that he died our death for, for our sin, not for his, that he suffered our punishment in our stead, and that God was satisfied with that punishment for all who would repent and believe. Friend, if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, I, I well imagine that there are things in this passage that I've just read, maybe things about men and women, that you find offensive. I, I get that. But, but don't miss, because of that offense, 
the greatness and the goodness of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. He has made it possible for you to know him. He has made it possible for you to be loved by him. If you will simply turn away from your self-asserting life, your life in which you claim to be Lord and God, and instead turn in faith to Jesus and admit that he is Lord, that he is God, and that at the cross, he loved you better than you deserved. I'd love to talk to you more about this. I'll be sitting right down front, so come find me. Maybe talk to the person that you came with, but please do not walk away without at least grappling with what it means that God would love you in this way, the way of the cross. Now, if this is what the Lord's Supper is, what does that mean for those of us who are believers, who have already put our faith in Christ? It means there is no place for self-serving distinctions in the church. Not at the Lord's table and not anywhere else. There is no place for insisting on our own rights. There is no place for for neglecting the, the needs of our brothers and sisters. No excuse for not spending ourselves, even as Christ spent himself for us, for not spending ourselves then on behalf of each other. Because to sin against each other in this way that, that Paul describes here, to sin against each other in this way by insisting on our own rights, our, our own pleasures, our, our own self-expression, is actually to sin against Jesus. That's what Paul says there in verse 27. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. And so Paul calls us to examine ourselves before we eat. To eat in an unworthy manner, he says, is to eat without recognizing the body. You see that there? In verse 29, for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's an interesting choice of word that he uses right there. Because if you remember from last week in chapter 10, Paul has already drawn a very close association between the body of Christ sacrificed on the cross and the body of Christ the local church that that shares together in the one loaf that represents Christ's body sacrificed on the cross. Recognizing the body of Christ in the supper, therefore, I think has two aspects to it. it. It is to recognize both what Christ did for us on the cross And it is to recognize the unity that we share together as a body because of the cross. The Lord's Supper is not just a like me and Jesus meal. It's an us and Jesus meal. So Paul calls the Corinthians and he calls us in verse 31 
to judge ourselves. Because if we don't, God will. That's how much he cares about this. People at Corinth were falling sick. Some had even fallen asleep. That is, they had died under that judgment. And Paul is clear that judgment is not a final judgment. We're, we're, we're to understand it as a discipline. And God's discipline is meant as a warning to us, to sober us up, to, to awaken us so that we will not fall under final judgment, being condemned with the world. Which is the way he ends verse 32. Friends, the Lord's Supper is no casual, like, Wednesday night family dinner. The Lord's Supper is serious stuff. It's not your personal spiritual vitamin. Your your, your pick-me-up for the next week or month. No, it is a meal that stands at the fulcrum of history and at the white-hot center of the cosmos. It is a meal that proclaims the gospel and that marks us as people who have been changed by that gospel. And woe to us if we participate in it without experiencing that change. And that change includes, at the very least, a rejection of the social distinctions and privileges that mark the world. That... that the haves and the have-nots are but one example of. As Paul says, when we come together, we're, we're, we're to welcome one another. The, the idea is that we should be waiting on one another and then receiving one another with, with great expectation. The, the image that comes to my mind, the one that I used in the devotional we sent out to the church this week, is, is, is the way my kids would be at the end of the day Right before I came home from work, now I only had to walk across a parking lot when they were that age. I didn't have to go far. Nevertheless, there was this big picture window that looked out over that parking lot, and every single day the kids would be lined up at that window when they were really little, right? They were really excited that dad was about to come home. They were waiting with great expectation, and when I walked through the door, I got mobbed. They couldn't wait to start the wrestling match. I had three boys and one little girl at the time. I couldn't wait to start the wrestling match that meant dad is home. Oh, I think that's the way we're supposed to be towards each other. We can't wait to come together. We can't wait to see each other. And when we do, we welcome one another. We don't stand apart. We don't stand on the divisions that the world stands on. The point of our gathering is the gathering. Not what each of us can get out of the gathering, but but the gathering itself, that, that together we are Christ's people, together in our love for one another, in our joyful receiving of one another, we proclaim Christ and Him crucified. You know, as you think about our celebration of the Lord's Supper, almost everything about it comes from taking this passage seriously. This is why we fence the table. 
Before we serve, we explain to everybody who can participate and who should not participate. We don't want people eating and drinking judgment on themselves. This is why we we give time for some self-reflection, and I've been encouraging the elders to not rush that prayer, to give you a little bit more time for self-reflection before we go to the table. This is why we eat the meal together, and not in small groups or on retreats or Sunday school classes or family groups. See, this isn't a meal for your family. It's a meal for this family. It's not a meal for just part of the family. It's a meal for the whole family. And so we wait for the whole to gather before we celebrate it. It's why we don't take the Lord's Supper to shut-ins. That's a hard one for me because I know how much it means. This is a meal for the family as it gathers. So brothers and sisters, take advantage of it while you're able to gather. The day will surely come for most of us when age and ill health will prevent us from being able to gather. this This is why it's on a schedule, and we always remind you when the Lord's Supper is, the first Sunday of the month, if you have any discretion over that camping trip, if you have any discretion over that family vacation, do not schedule it on the first Sunday of the month. There is a finite number of those Sundays you have in this life. And it is that big a deal. This is why we read the covenant sometimes before the Lord's Supper. To to remind ourselves that this is not a meal just privately between me and Jesus. But this is an us meal. This is a we meal. And we have commitments to one another because of our commitment to Christ. This is why we always announce it in advance. So that if you need to pursue reconciliation with somebody in this church, you'll have time to do so. This is why, actually, we even pass the plate rather than having you come forward and getting it. It'd be much more efficient if we had everybody just come, come forward and then file back to their seats. But no, we, we, we pass the elements so that you're serving each other. I'm not the host at this meal. Jesus is. And so we serve one another as we pass the plate along. This is not a drive-through, self-serve meal. We eat together. Paul says to the Corinthians, there in verse 34, if you want to have a big meal, do that at home so that you won't come under judgment. I don't think he's finally concerned just about the size of the meal. I think what he's really talking about there is that we leave our worldly class distinctions behind when we come to church. What does that mean for us at Henson? Well, it's why historically we've associated the benevolence offering 
with the celebration of the Lord's Supper. We want to care for our brothers and sisters in need, not exclude them. Back when we used to pass the plate for the offering, we would literally pass once a month, we would take up a second offering. We're not doing that anymore. Let me encourage you, don't forget about the Benevolence Fund. Uh, maybe particularly on the first Sunday of the month. If you give electronically uh, or if you put something in, in, the, in the box in the back, don't forget to give to the Benevolence Fund. This is a way that we make it really clear that we're not leaving those in our midst who are struggling financially behind. But it's not just about economics. You know, in America, the church is shamefully divided over ethnic distinctions, over political distinctions, over cultural distinctions, over generational distinctions, over educational distinctions, over the distinctions of ability and disability. Brothers and sisters, it should not be. It should not be. Some of those distinctions are real. I get it. But when we gather, we leave those distinctions at home. We leave them behind. That doesn't mean we pretend they don't exist. It means when we come to church, we are actively working for the unity of the body in the midst of all of those very real distinctions. Are there ways in which the majority culture of this church defined in any of those ways I just mentioned, not just ethnic, but there are like lots of ways we can think about the majority culture of this church. Are there ways in which the majority culture or cultures of this church are leaving minority cultures on the outside looking in. How would you know the answer to that question if you've never asked? Let me encourage you to ask that question this week. We need to judge ourselves, Henson. I'm not saying we're doing a bad job. I'm just saying what Paul's saying. We need to judge ourselves. Because if we don't, God will. Expressive individualism, which is where I started, is not all bad. I've kind of come to like purple houses. There's a place for self-expression. There's a place for pursuing your own interests, enjoying yourself in in the specific ways that God's made you or the specific community out there that God's put you in. But that place is not the church. When we approach God, we approach him on his terms, not ours. We submit to his authority, which means the authorities that he's established. We accept his terms revealed at the cross, terms that cut across all of the distinctions of class and culture that this world values. We come on his terms, which are the terms of the cross, the terms of self-sacrificing love. We give 
glory to God, not shame, glory to God when we love one another even as Christ has loved us. Would you pray with me? Take just a moment and think about maybe that one place where you want to approach God on your terms rather than his and just confess it to him. Heavenly Father, we, we have sinfully taken for granted that we can approach you, that we can approach you in prayer, that we can approach you at the table. We so often have thoughtlessly brought along with us the, the, the rejection of your Lordship. Not, not consciously, Lord, but but practically, as is expressed in so many different ways in our lives, insisting on our way rather than yours. Lord, we pray that you would humble us, that we would accept your terms and sue for peace on those terms alone. For your terms are the terms of love. Allow us to see that and allow us to live out of that, we pray. And we ask all this in Christ's name, amen. And now hear this good word from the Lord to you. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.